welcome to Two Tacos High, a handbell podcast. I'm Brian Seaman. I'm Nick Hansen. Two Tacos High, where we talk about all things handbells, talk about current and upcoming handbell events, have interviews with many wonderful handbell guests, and maybe some other handbell or taco surprises. Today's a little bit of both of those. It is. We are excited for today's interview. There's been a lot of uh, talk, taco, talk, talk about it. No, talk about um, the name to Taco Sai for our podcast. What's great is that it's one of those phrases and words that for handbell enthusiasts, like you probably have that that connection to when you first heard it, whether it's at a festival or a friend or uh, just a fellow ringer. Um, and we can just kind of take the opportunity to to say, okay, where really did that come from? Many of you have traced back the lineage of the term two tacos high to at least Kevin McChesney, but it goes a little bit further than that. That's right. And during that time, when I believe it was about the early to mid-90s, when Kevin McChesney was doing a lot of uh, festivals at the time in so many parts of the country, and that phrase was being used so much, it was actually a another person who Kevin was in partnership in a lot of projects at that time who did coin the phrase first. That person is Michael Kastner who is our special guest today. So we are here with uh, Michael Kastner, who may be a surprise to some of you with our our guest today as we are interviewing uh, to talk a bit about uh, himself as well as some history with our podcast name. But to start things off, um, Michael, could you give us a a background of um, just like general music? How how did music start in your life and maybe when handbells began for you? Sure. Well, uh, thank you. First of all, thanks for asking me. This is cool. Uh, I hope you have a really successful blog. And uh, diving right in, um, I started in music in probably third or fourth grade at, with piano lessons. And I did the uh, obligatory year and a half. And uh, I also was involved in church choir for uh, young people at the time. This is elementary age. And started playing trumpet in sixth grade. Um so that was some more music, but uh, I didn't like the way my voice sounded when I was uh, in the singing choir, especially when my voice started uh, changing. And then they had a, um, at my church in Oklahoma, this is in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, First Methodist Church there, they had a three octave set of white chapel bells and a bell choir of all boys, which is, I, I guess, everything that's bad has happened to me in the in the last few years has been payback for this particular (laughs) (laughs) uh, event. But um, I joined the bell choir in seventh grade and played for six years, uh, seventh through 12th grade, and just loved it. Um, We went to festivals. Uh, The first festival I remember was uh, with Donald Allured at the helm. Mm. And uh, years later, that event came back to bite me because I was at a... uh, an event in um, Little Rock, Arkansas, and one of the directors recognized me and said, I bet you were one of those boys that jumped in the pool at 2 a.m. Oh, no. <laughs> at Fountainhead Lodge in Oklahoma. So I was, <laughs> I thought my history was behind me, but there you go. Hmm. Anyway, um, so I started ringing then, and I rang for six years. Um, I kind of laid out during my uh, college years, and then when I moved to California, for my first job, um, I joined a Methodist church there in Campbell, California, and joined the adult bell choir and saw the need and said, hey, uh, has anybody ever 
had a youth choir and they said, no, go for it. So I did. And I started the Wesley Ringers, not the one that is famous from Salt Lake City, but uh, our own version. And I directed them for uh, about five years before moving to Massachusetts. Uh, when I moved to Massachusetts, I got involved in the guild, um, the official workings of the guild at that time called the American Guild of English Handbell Ringers. And I was Massachusetts state chair, and then I was elected to be the Area One chairman. And during that time, I organized and ran two festivals because I was actually Area One chairman for an extra, extra year so um, that was an extra bit of experience. Um, that's my background. Okay. What what year was the uh, the the chair uh, length? Where, when... uh, that was that was uh, 1989 through 91. Okay. What was your first conducting or like leading gig? Well, I I conducted the um, the Wesley Ringers in California right. for five years. I like from a festival when perspective, I, moved, I guess I'm, I'm asking for that. When I moved to Massachusetts. I conducted at a spring ring, and that's when I learned through the microphone and uh, major foible um, that New England had six states because I announced that it wasn't a, a, a miracle that we had people from all five New England no. states. <laughs> no. so, but that was my first conducting gig uh, for, a, it was a little spring ring, and then I went on to conduct, uh, I had a choir at a congregational church in Southboro, Massachusetts, and then later I directed both a choral group and a and the the bell choir at uh, a Methodist church in Framingham, Massachusetts. And while I was chair, I was you know uh, because of the way the guild functioned at the time, uh, any of the chairs that were attending the national festivals were also de facto clinicians. So I got to do a lot of uh, handbell workshops for solo and for ensemble and weaving and uh, that sort of thing. Are you surrounded by bells right now? We heard that. Oh, I am. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, wait a minute. <laughs> I was gonna say my first introduction yeah. to you was in the in the solo world. I remember um, I was in high school at the time, I think, and I saw a bunch of ads for um, C for solo ex ensemble extravaganza. Oh. Oh, yes. And I really, really wanted to go to that event. Um, and that would have been uh, the, it was some point in high school. I can't remember what year that was, mid 2005-ish area. Yeah, we did C for five years, which sort of jumps ahead chronologically. Um, after I was in Massachusetts, I took a job in Colorado and moved to Colorado. And within what seemed like minutes, Kevin McChesney is on the phone with me mm -hmm. saying, hey, I'm doing some workshops. Can you please come help me? I've got 45 people and I don't know how to direct that many. So uh, this was, uh, you know, a one-on-one -on -one type of workshop. So we, um, we put together what ended up being the seed for C because it, we basically did a weekend workshop where we taught all sorts of solo and ensemble skills and we had... Uh, music that we passed out and had them learn on the spot. Uh, it was an amazing time because uh, we ran into all sorts of ability levels. We had people that were able to sight read level three and level four music, uh, you know, and, you know, what are we going to teach them? And, and it turns out there's plenty that they can learn because solo and ensemble is 
is so different. And then we had uh, we had one group which Kevin and I call the Phyllis Trio because all three of the members, it turns out, were were named Phyllis uh, just by happenstance. So uh, that was kind of fun. Uh, during that time, Kevin and I also wrote a book. We wrote uh, Solo Ringing Musically, which is a is a textbook. Uh, it's still available from Jeffers, and it takes you through all sorts of uh, uh, beginning and advanced solo ringing technique, which also applies to ensemble, obviously. When was the official first C of it? Uh, it was in, oh gosh... 1993, I think, 90, 91, 93, 95, 97, and we skipped one and did 2001, I believe, was the, were the five events. The way we advertised it was um, <laughs> through our newsletter, and we had started an organization called STEP, mm-hmm. Solo to Ensemble Project, which was effectively a, a publishing company for solo duet trio and quartet music that could be printed on demand. Um, it was kind of the first of that business of that kind. We used that as a platform for sending music to everybody that was a member. And then we used that newsletter to advertise C as well as doing some direct mailing. I got all sorts of lists from the guild and that sort of thing and bombarded people with uh back then it was just put a stamp on a letter and send it so uh, i was on the receiving end of that when i was in high school actually i got a few oh, of those good. yep um, which i'm gonna <laughs> good i'm sorry you didn't make it we yeah. had a great time we we ended up at uh at the c event we had people from six different countries wow we had uh, uh several people from canada uh we had um, somebody from Germany. We had a couple come from England. Uh, we had someone from China, and we had three or four come from Japan. So we were already an international event with uh, kind of a right out the door. That's amazing. That's really cool. And Brian had mentioned his first time kind of hearing your name connected with you. I'm. I think I told you this story, but the first time I met you was an Area Eight festival. And two memories really stand out from that event. Uh, the first one was the opening dinner. Um, and I, f- I don't think this was Cedar Rapids. That would have been 93, I think. Um, so it probably was 95 or 97 is what my memory serves. And you did a solo performance that night. And you did a bit of a, a what I thought was just the most sacrilegious thing ever. You ended your solo by taking like... I want to say it was like an A6 or a G6 and a C7, and you purposefully clanged them together to create oh. that little last little quote-unquote chord at the end. And yeah. I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I still do that on one of the pieces. If you have uh, something like, I'm going to put something together for you. This. Uh-huh. And you just touch the rims. It makes a nice soft sound. That was probably Winter by Vivaldi where I did that because it it uh, I wanted to imitate snow falling mm. and it was a better it was a better sound. Yeah, that was definitely one of the memories mm-hmm. that stuck with me, and I can I still to this day can remember where I was seated, like my angle watching, and I was like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that was that was the first memory. But then the second one was you were leading solo and ensemble classes at the event, and myself, my brother. 
and two of our friends, we had a quartet that we called Perpetual Motion, and we were the only ones who signed up for your class. So if you remember oh. some random class one time in Area 8 where it was just you and four high school age kids, that was that was well, that, that was me. that's happened that's happened before, <laughs> but yeah, I do remember that. Yep. We had I remember we had a lot of fun just basically grabbing all this music and ringing together for an hour. It was a, it was a really good time. Right. Well, I teach whoever shows up. That, exactly. That's part of the gig. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, most of my training comes from attending classes like that. I attended classes at every festival that I've been to, whether I'm a, a clinician or just a participant. And I've learned from the greatest. You know, I took classes from Don Allyred and David Davidson back in the day. And I've taken classes from Kathy Fink and Nancy Haskell and Nancy... Uh, Nancy Jessup? Ca Southern California. Yeah, Nancy, Nancy Jessup. Mm -hmm. Jessup, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, she, uh, you know... We just kind of melded our styles, and so some of the clinicians now that are uh, are teaching, like uh, uh, Michelle Sherrick, came to see, and she she was already an accomplished soloist mm -hmm. at the time. So some of that some of that rubs off both ways. Um, there was a quartet that I taught in New England, uh, New Hampshire, and. I didn't remember teaching them, but I came back two years later to a festival and watched them ring. And I said, oh, you guys must have worked with Kathy Fink. And they said, no, you taught us. <laughs> and so uh, Kathy Fink's style went right through my hands to theirs. Mm. And I, I thought that was kind of cool. C is one of those events that I definitely wish I had the opportunity to attend. And it's something that I would definitely participate in if the event were to ever take place again. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, I would love to do another event. I, I would just, I think that the demand is there. There's new clinicians that could teach uh, just as well as, as us old farts. So um, I, I would love to see that uh, format set up again. Do you still own C or, or Step? or? No, I, C was not really an entity. Okay. Step was the entity that, and it was an LLC. It has been sold to Synology Music. And there is some rumblings about uh, either Synology or Forte putting on a C-like event. I don't know that it'll be called C. Um, we saw. But... <laughs> Sorry, that was a terrible pun. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, th that's in. That's either in the works or in the dream. I'm not sure which. Well, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm sure we could reach out and just kind of say, "Hey, this was mentioned on the podcast. Should we?" Are we, like, is it yeah. the right time to kind of maybe spring that on people? So that that would be a good I think conversation. This would be great. I think the timing is really good. You can ask Megan. Yeah. So our podcast name, Two Tacos High, and it comes from I guess handbell legend, if you will, or handbell lore. And I would say the majority of folks who ring bells and have heard that phrase, Two Tacos High, they know it references the Mart technique. Like that, that's for sure. But I think the majority of them feel or are under the impression that Kevin was the one who coined that phrase. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Kevin and I were working together heavily at that time. And, and yes, he adopted that phrase as, as soon as I said it out of my lips. But um, I believe that I gave him the idea because uh, here's, here's, how, here's what happened. Teaching uh, solo and ensemble technique, I wanted to express 
uh, the fact that marting is a technique, not a dynamic. And I wanted to get that across to people. Um, it's, it basically changes the articulation. And I didn't want people slamming the bell down from their shoulder, although I watched a C2 once destroyed that way. But uh, I didn't want them, you know, lifting it up off the pad before the damping happened. So I kind of invented some images, and one of the images I had was was an elevator coming down so mm. that you're, you're standing on an elevator and you just lower the bell straight into the table. Um, and that, that didn't take hold. But walking out from work one day, I saw this car and it was a very fancy paint job, uh, purple and uh, pinstripes and flames. And, and I looked at it as I walked by and it had tan fur and one of these uh, steering wheels that looked like a square bar that had been twisted into a circle. And I'm thinking, how does this guy get out of the parking lot? Because his car was down probably an inch from the ground. And we had massive speed bumps in the parking lot. So I'm thinking, how in the world did he, did he get out of there? And about that time, I'm kind of sensing that somebody's walking behind me. And I look, and it's the guy. And I, I knew it was the guy because of the way he was dressed. I knew this had to be the guy. <laughs> and he gets in the car, and I hear this, <laughs> and he was jacking up the wheels so he could drive out over the speed bump. And so my image was, man, that thing was only two tacos high. And that's where I got that image is, you know, when people, and it's kind of fun too, because people will say, well, that is that end-to-end tacos? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> or, you know, no, you, you put the tacos so the meat doesn't spill out. But um, that that's where that expression came from. And during the early 90s, I was working with Kevin so heavily that I'm sure whatever he said, I said, and vice versa. So that's that's where that came from. I, I never thought where that story was going. That's where it was. I, yeah, with the absolutely. car. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. <laughs> and we are thankful that you have given us the blessing to use that as our oh, podcasting. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I think it's, it's an honor. Uh, the only other technique that I claim is the, the paw. Elaborate, yeah, elaborate on that meant, one, please. Uh, well, okay. Um, a lot of people do this now, and a lot of the techniques that we do, like traveling four in hand, is is of necessity. And I think it was simultaneously invented by by more people than just Nancy Haskell. But um, the paw is you take two bells that are four in hand, like a, a D over a B, with the D spun so you can see through the handle and the B laying on the table. And then with your pinky, you extend it out and get another bell, say a, a G or something smaller, so that you can ring one forward and two to the side like that, and you can ring them independently. Um, the reason I call that the paw comes from this. I taught at an uh, uh, international symposium in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I had a bunch of Japanese students, and they, they didn't speak much English, but we have an interpreter, and it was a lot of fun. But uh, when I showed this technique, one of them real quick ran out of the room, came back in, and she's got a little tiny pin, and it was uh, Maneki Neko, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the, the... Lucky cat. Happy mm -hmm. cat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and it shows that it has the paw raised, you know, in the in the foreign hand uh, with an extra uh, bell position. And so I said, well, what should I call this technique? And they're like, uh, oh, neko note, neko note. And that means hand of the cat hmm. or cat's paw. And so I called it the cat's paw. And then I thought, well, it could be Kastner's okay. paw <laughs> <laughs> or just just the paw. And I, I didn't really care, you know, who who got credit for it. But uh, that seemed like a good name for it because it looks like uh, Maneki Neko. In talking a little bit before this episode, you mentioned a little bit of your musical experience outside of handbells. You mentioned that you had played trumpet throughout junior and senior high school and in college, and were also a drum major for your senior year in your high school marching band. In our first episode, Nick and I had both talked a little bit about our marching backgrounds. Well, it was a fun time. I, I was in the Tulsa, Oklahoma Honor Band, and I, I uh, played trumpet for three years in junior high school and three more years in senior high. And uh, my last year, I was the drum major, which meant I had all sorts of extra duties like filling in from when the band director had to be at a, at a meeting uh, and just direct the, the whole group, which got me kind of my directing seeds going because uh, that's the first time I really directed any, anything that was an ensemble. And when we were on the field uh, marching, uh, of course, I wore the tall drum major Shaco, and since I was the shortest drum major they ever had, I would climb up a three-step ladder, and when they wanted the downbeat for a big fanfare, I would jump off the ladder, and when my feet hit the ground, that That's was the excuse for the, for the downbeat. <laughs> <laughs> Were you a drum major, Brian? I was never a drum major. Um, at the time when I was in high school, I just I enjoyed playing too much that I didn't want to give up actually being on the field performing um, for that. Although there are definitely elements, and I, Nick might be asking that a little pointedly because he rings under uh, my direction at Virginia Bronze, and my conducting does sometimes get a little drum majory. I was not going that way. No, I was actually asking because <laughs> I auditioned to be a drum major, and I was an alternate, and I was mad by that i did try for it in my, my senior year and i was an alternate and i i think i took it very personally <laughs> well speaking of that i think this is interesting to your podcast listeners too um when i first directed i first directed bells and i directed for a number of years before i ever directed a choral group and at the methodist church in framingham massachusetts i directed both and my first rehearsal with the choir they were singing you know, something sweet and lovely, and it sounded like this. Oh, 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 oh. And I'm like, what is wrong with you people? And then I looked at my hand, and I went, oh, it's me. <laughs> and I learned to direct with a softer ictus to direct choral people because it's not the same as band, and it's not the same as bell. So that was a, a lesson learned. Yes, I've definitely noticed that, um, yeah, in conducting festivals or in, in working with my high schoolers sometimes who who will look anywhere in the room except up at the director, that it is a little helpful to kind of pull out the drum major style sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I well, I love directing mass ringings. Um, I've directed in Area 1 at a festival there. I directed in Area 3. I directed uh, Area 11, which is where I live now. Uh, it just every time I direct mast, I'm like, this is way more fun than even solo ringing. 
I just get a real charge out of it. And I think I give a lot of energy to the, to the people that I direct. I think it's something that Brian and I can really relate to because just by the nature of how popular bells are at our schools, like every class period feels like a mass ring event almost. It's, it's great just having that many students or, or just ringers at once um, working together to, to, uh, to, to do the best they can. So right there with you. I totally agree. Well, I guess the only thing that's similar is I've seen a mass ring for uh, xylophones, and that's incredible, but it's one person playing all the notes. The, the magical thing about bells, and I, I say this anytime I get a, an audience in front of me, is it's the only instrument in the world that it takes 22 hands to play, or 28 hands, depending on your size of your choir, but... It's the only instrument in the world that that more people direct or play at the same time because it's really one instrument. It's just spread out over 24 or 36 feet of table. Yeah, that's one of the things that I, um, in my handbell classes, both when talking to the students for their first week in class and, and talking to parents anytime I talk about the instrument is, um, I always use the example of it's like sitting 11, 12, people all down at one piano and then saying, you take these two notes, you take these two notes and playing the full piano as one instrument, but with everybody participating among those 11, 12, 13, however many people. Yeah. You've done many events out there. So I'm, I'm curious, um, probably the symposium was an event that really stood out to you with, with when you were teaching with the Japanese students. Any other like really fond memories that, that you recall from all your, your vast history of handbell events? And Well, I did the... I did this symposium in uh, Toronto, Canada also, and that was, that was a blast. Um, Heather Keith and her husband and me and my wife both learned a duet, the Symphonia on Heiferdahl that Kevin McChesney wrote. And it involves the table ringing and belfry playing. We both learned it and we called each other periodically to see, you know, what hand does this start on on this phrase? And we got that all together and played it as a double duet in Canada for the for the symposium. And people were just amazed. They thought, wow, uh, how did you put this together? Because you live like 1,600 miles apart. <laughs> and uh, it was a lot of, lot of choreography, but not that much. Not, it's less than people think. It just was uh, six or eight places in the piece where we said, let's be sure and start on the right hand on this note or let's be sure and mallet this way, you know, that sort of thing. And, and just had a few key places and it made it look like we knew what we were doing. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to ask what you were, what you've been doing recently in the handbell world. Have you been conducting recently and still actively doing festivals? And if so, um, if anybody uh, listening to the podcast would like to reach out to you and have you work with them. <laughs> I would love to do a festival again. I would love to do a festival again, either as a conductor or as a clinician. I just, I haven't done much since I moved back from, uh, well, I moved to Maryland about six years ago and worked there for three years and then moved back to Colorado. And during that time, I really kind of got out of the, the loop. Uh, I had an audition choir called Bells of the Rockies that I started in 1997, I think it was, um, and directed them until I moved in 2018. Um, so that was that was a, definitely a highlight for me because Bells of the Rockies were, you know, one of these 
uh, dream choirs mm -hmm. that can can take on just about anything. They're they're on YouTube if people want to look for it. It's Bells of the Rockies, all one word. But uh, that that was one of my highlights. Um, I'd also directed in a couple of uh, religious music camps uh, in North Carolina. They have Junaluska, Lutheridge, Ridgecrest, and I've directed uh, workshops at all three of those. So that was that was a highlight too. Especially the French Broad Chocolate Factory in in uh, where is it North Carolina? Um, I'll think of it in a minute. Mm -hmm. If if people would like to reach out to you to hire you as a clinician, what is the best way to contact you? Well, I'm on the internet. I'm on Facebook. Uh, Michael E. Kastner at Comcast.net. I'm on Facebook. You can find me there. And uh, I think I'm also listed with the Handbell Musicians of America as a clinician but they might have old information there because I've moved a couple of times. Well, Michael, this has been great, and we're so glad you uh, agreed to come on uh, to talk not just about the title. It's not just about the podcast, of course, but um, just to uh, give the background and let people get to know you more. Maybe they may not have known more of your history and that you're out there, but of course that you're like, yeah, I'm ready to go for, for what's next. So hopefully that'll... <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. That'll, that'll, yeah, that'll definitely. make some, some connections. I'm, I'm in a position now where I... I don't have an audition group, so I don't have a, a schedule that I can't break in order to, you know, come do a festival or whatever. So that that's definitely in my uh, wish list. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks for uh, this format. I think this is going to be a fabulous, and I, I really think the name is cool. <laughs> of course. Thanks, Michael. <laughs> Thank you. All right. We'll see you guys. Right. Thank you. Thank you all so much for joining us for this episode of Two Tacos High, a handbell podcast. If you'd like to reach us to talk about anything handbell-related or suggest a future podcast topic, you can reach out to us at twotacoshigh at gmail.com. We are also Two Tacos High on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All of those are spelled out, Two Tacos High, T-W-O-T-A-C-O-S-H-I-G-H. Two Tacos High comes out every other Tuesday and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcast. Be sure to subscribe follow so you're always up to date on when new episodes are released thank you so much for joining us i'm nick hansen and i'm brian seaman and this has been two tacos high a handbell podcast bye